Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Perhaps you or your parents were alive in the 1980s. I was. And as a kid, I remember it being a decade of Sony Walkmans and video stores, hairspray and leg warmers, MTV and Back to the Future. And of course, the early days of video gaming at home. Yet despite all of this fun stuff, it was also a decade of anxiety and fear. The AIDS virus was sweeping through the globe, stealing lives away. And there was the not insignificant worry that your school class might get interrupted with a four-minute warning at any point. That nuclear Armageddon was about to be unleashed. Yet if you were a parent at the time, particularly if you were from a religious background, the most chilling threat of all may not have been lurking in a disease or an intercontinental missile, but actually in your kid's record collection or their Dungeons and Dragons games they played with friends These, according to some commentators, were doorways through which Satan himself would come and turn pleasant, normal children towards sex, drug abuse, suicide, self-harm, and yes, even murder. This fear was fueled by sermons and books and mainstream TV talk shows that featured segments on whether the He-Man cartoon was demonic or not. You don't see much of that these days, and you could say that the satanic panic has now died out though we will later discover that perhaps it's returned in a slightly different way. But tonight, we will wind back to the 1980s and 90s and ask, what drove some parents to genuinely think that their children were at risk of becoming satanic killers? Had mom and dad simply fallen for exaggerated rhetoric and sensational reporting on TV? Yes, in some ways they had. But at the same time, there really were actual crimes that took place in those decades, which seemed, at least on the surface, to be in the name of Satan. These satanic murder stories, which you are about to hear, would become some of the most convincing evidence to parents that Lucifer really was lurking ever closer to their children, and that he was always ready to pass them the knife so they might kill. And once again, I have to warn you, Some of the crimes tonight are disturbing, and some include the mutilation of both humans and animals. But if you think you can handle that, then I'm Peter Laws. And tonight on Frightful, we explore some of the real-life cases that helped fuel the satanic panic and the threat of the murder teens. 
dabble. It means to take part in an activity in a casual way. It's not a word we use much these days. But in the years of the satanic panic, it was used often, where teenagers were warned not to dabble in the occult, because if they did, they might wind up on a slippery slope to murder. And really, it was seen as a gradual slope, starting perhaps with a harmless horror movie or buying a heavy metal album. No big deal. But critics would say that these things would normalize satanic imagery and would pave the way to full-on occult involvement. For example, there's the case of Roger, a teenager in the UK whose story was shared by a Christian writer called Andrew Boyd. His 1996 book, Dangerous Obsessions, helped fuel the satanic panic. And he said that Roger had first become interested in tarot cards, but in time he became initiated fully into the occult by his older brother Ian, and that they would gather together in a coven for bloodletting rituals, cutting himself with a razor blade. And Roger said, I used to slash myself and drip blood onto paper and shirts to be artistic. And sometimes they would even rub the blood across their faces or drink it, chanting the names of demons over and over again to achieve a trance-like state. But there were stories that moved beyond this, more from self-harm to harming animals. For example, there was a Christian documentary film from 1989 called Devil Worship, The Rise of Satanism, the VHS of which was passed around churches at the time, from parent to worried parent. That film featured a woman who claimed to be a former high priestess of Satanism from Croydon, England, and she explained how it felt when she first cut the head off an animal. I had an incredibly sharp knife, she said, and I thought, you know this is going to be amazing and then I just cut its head off. And once you've actually passed the barrier of sacrificing an animal, you get a sort of bloodlust where you really want to do it. And I really wanted to do it. Skeptics said that this woman could simply have made all of this up. But just a year later, some news reports came out in Ireland that helped stoke the fear in some parents again, because this time, teenagers were involved. On February 6, 1990, the Evening Herald in Dublin reported on a probe into eight teenagers who said they had been lured into performing black magic rituals by adults. These grown-ups had supposedly taken them to a hilltop fort at midnight and made them sacrifice animals by candlelight. Indeed, the charred remains of a dead cat was found on Clevedon Beach. It had been staked with its paws outstretched across an open fire of sacrifice. In 1992, a donkey was discovered at a popular Irish beauty spot. It had been hacked to death, and some sources said there were satanic symbols carved into the head. The following year, in the same area, a dead cat was found hanging upside down from a tree. Boyd also cites a case from 1994 where three so-called devil worshippers were arrested for, quote, sacrificing animals and drinking their blood. Their satanic rituals involved kicking sheep and dogs to death. In the UK, in the 1990s, there was a spate of attacks on horses, including sexual assault and mutilation, which supposedly led owners to set up vigils called Horse Watch to prevent the attacks. Boyd even quotes a mother who claims that her son had been part of a ring of satanic pedophiles. And he told her that he had witnessed a horse being sacrificed by having a live power drill 
pushed into its brain. They even said that a stallion was made to get an erection and then the penis was hacked off by someone with an electric saw. I told you this stuff was grim. Gory tales like this had been shared throughout the years of the panic. Like in 1989, when a pamphlet called Satanism in America talked about a teenager called Sharon from El Paso, Texas. She said she took part in a naked ritual where a hogtied bull had its throat cut. Then she slit open its stomach so that all of the worshippers could gather round and push their hands inside, where they would pull and drag the intestines out, scattering them on the ground. How true these shocking animal stories are is hard to tell. But these sorts of tales in newspapers and on TV made parents look at one another in fear, wondering if their child, sleeping peacefully upstairs, may get sucked into one of these cults. And the slope seemed almost inevitable, that it started with a seemingly harmless interest in games or music, and then led to self-harm or suicide, even animal mutilation. How long would it be until it led to murder. Well, sensing the fear of parents across the world, the media would provide plenty of examples of exactly that. On December the 10th, 1987, United Press International reported on a shocking crime at Carl Junction, Missouri. Three teenagers had been charged with the brutal murder of Stephen Newbury. The four of them had an interest in Satanism. One day, one of them, called Jim Hardy, caught a black and white kitten, and he dropped it into a mesh bag. It had simply wandered out in front of him. Yet Hardy was amazed and convinced this was a gift from the devil. So he and these three friends walked to an isolated spot that day, and they hung the cat from a tree and took turns smacking it with baseball bats. But if that wasn't enough... Something happened next that would devastate the community. Three of the teens turned on the fourth, Stephen Newbury. He was a 19-year-old with learning difficulties, who it was said was only going along with this group to try and fit in. His mother would later tell the LA Times, he was so eager to be liked and so easy to take advantage of. And that's what happened. The three 17-year-old boys beat him to death with the bats. One of the bats even had the word ultraviolence written across it, a reference to Stanley Kubrick's controversial film about youth crime, A Clockwork Orange. But despite what you might think, this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. It wasn't a sudden escalation of animal mutilation to real-world violence against humans. No, the murder of Stephen Newbury had been planned all along. In fact, they had attempted to arrange this a few times before, but Stephen's mother could tell he was in danger from these boys and kept them away. Only this time, she couldn't save him. They threw his body down a 10-foot deep abandoned well, along with the corpses of two dead squirrels and a dead kitten. Later, one of the boys, Pete Rowland, was interviewed on the infamous episode of the Geraldo Rivera talk show where viewers were disturbed by his description of the murder. He said that Newbury, the victim, had just kept saying, Why me? Why me? As they started to beat him to death and chase him down. And one of the boys simply answered the question with this, Because it's fun, Steve. 
And then Roland added, we all just like vultures, just, you know, we went in. What really fed into the fear was the fact that Jim Hardy, for example, was not just some spooky stereotypical dropout delinquent. He had been the high school class president. Yet this bright and talented young man with much promise had somehow switched to a cold-blooded killer. Or at least, that's how many people read it. One of the boys Pete Rowland fed into the satanic panic when he said that heavy metal had played a part, and that he had started to kill animals and take drugs because, quote, something else kind of took over inside my own mind. Larry Parrell, the Jasper County Chief Deputy Sheriff, told the press that the suspects showed a frightening lack of regret for what they had done. He was quoted as saying, They're still cool. That bothers me more than anything else. I don't care how brutal a murder you've worked, there's always some remorse. These boys have shown none that I have seen yet. It kind of makes you wonder what this new generation is thinking. The case prompted many locals to call the sheriff, saying that they knew of other devil worship groups in the town, which helped stoke the fear of a widespread demonic conspiracy. But one might ask how those callers defined what a devil worship group was. Did they simply class any group of kids who wore black and were into horror and heavy metal or played D&D as devil worshippers? We don't know. But the influence of the case would stretch across the world, with parents worried, what if their children, who may be doing well at school and showing promise, could fall so quickly too? As we've heard tonight, back in the 1980s, parents would have had a full-on swivel-eyed freakout if their kids started playing any game that had sinister overtones. So if mom and dad heard that young Billy was playing a game called Best Fiends, you might think they'd be cranking up the holy water hose and speed dialing Pastor Greg. But you'd be wrong, because even the worried parents of the 1980s would happily succumb to the wholesome fun charms of this fabulous little puzzle game. Best Fiends is a great way to relax and unwind, and I love how easy it is to get caught up in the endless puzzles, the cute characters, the storyline. By the way, I'm on level 20 at the moment, and I just discovered that when I complete level 21, I'll unlock a special event. I don't really know exactly what the special event is, but I'm excited to find out. Anyway, you can download this game for free and play for five minutes for five hours. It's up to you. So yeah, I reckon those 1980s parents may well have frisbee thrown your records out of the window or dumped a pile of manure on your Dungeons & Dragons miniatures. But even they would be sneaking little sessions on Best Fiends because it's just a lot of fun and a great way to chill out. And let's be fair, they probably could have done with that back then. Heck, you could do with that right now, couldn't you? So download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. There were plenty more cases to fuel the panic, some from the very start of the decade. A particularly distressing one comes from February the 8th, 1980, when a 17-year-old called Robin Murphy took part in a horrific ritual. She had become part of a bizarre cult led by a man called Carl Drew. On that February night, Drew wanted to punish another member called Karen Marsden. 
The 20-year-old woman had said she wanted to leave the cult. I don't blame her. But Drew therefore knew that she had to die. He ordered young Robin Murphy to drag Marsden by her hair into the woods. And then he handed her a knife and commanded her to slit Marsden's throat. She did. Soon after, the truly twisted leader, Carl Drew, snapped Marsden's neck, then had sex with her lifeless body, and he then cut off Marsden's head and kicked it around like a soccer ball. He ordered Robin Murphy to pull the hair from the head in clumps. This awful killing became part of what has become known as the Fall River Murders. And there were more. For example, in 1985, five teenagers convinced a 19-year-old man to join them in a field where they attacked him, beating him, choking him with a scarf, and then stabbing him with both a knife and a piece of pipe. They even took turns cutting the man's throat. One of the teens was later linked to devil worship. Or in Germany in 1994, when three 17-year-old boys who called themselves Satan's children and dressed in black cloaks and listened to metal, they took a 15-year-old boy and tortured him for two hours before finally strangling him. Or in Hungary, when a 17-year-old boy murdered his 13-year-old sister and dismembered her body, he took her blood and drew an inverted cross on the wall, as well as the word Satan, and also scattered her organs in various parts of the room. Perhaps we might sympathize then, that some parents were afraid that this could actually happen to their own children. But perhaps it's more complicated than that. In Florida in 1988, a young boy entered the hallway of his family's Tampa apartment to see a horrifying sight. His mother was lying dead on the floor. Her throat was cut and she'd been stabbed 40 times and she had clearly struggled, judging by the deep gashes on her hands. In the days to come, police confronted the older brother, John Cantero, who broke down and confessed to the crime. And believers in the satanic onslaught made much of the fact that Cantero had been a fan of Dungeons and Dragons and was fascinated by the occult. But his mother was a devout fundamentalist Christian who had desperately tried to pray this interest out of him. On one occasion, she had grabbed all his books and albums and set fire to them in the yard. And when that wasn't enough... She did something truly bizarre. She slit her own wrists and then daubed the words, Go to hell, Satan, across the vanity mirror. Then she set her room on fire. This was hardly a stable environment for a young man to grow up in. And it's possible that these sorts of reactions had added to his delinquency. But that is not to excuse what he did. You know, when Cantero led the police to where he had buried some bloody clothing, he opened up the bundle and showed him this neatly written to-do list for the murder. And it said, 1. Go to school. 2. Leave at 11.45. 3. Pull up at mom's house. 4. Enter and greet mom. 5. Go to bathroom. 6. Prepare knife and handkerchief. 7. Go directly to mom. 8. When her back is turned. 9. Cover her mouth. 10. 
Stab until dead. 11. Cut off her left hand. Some reports say that Quintero said he was so shocked and unnerved that he'd actually carried out this crime that he never got round to the last part, cutting off her hand. Other reports say that he did attempt to cut off the hand, but that he was too frightened to collect his mother's blood in a vial, which was his original plan. Either way, a consultant on the case said that after the killing, Cantero carved a five-pointed star into his palm, and then he stood over the body of his mother so that he could recite this following poem. He said, Lord Satan, thou I had stricken this woman from the earth. I have slain the womb from which I was born. I have ended her reign of desecration of my mind. She is no longer of me, yet only a simple serpent on a lower plane. Two mental health experts examined Cantero and diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic who heard voices and was extremely delusional. Yet when you read the satanic panic literature about the case, he was just another example of an everyday boy who was warped by Satan himself to become not only a killer, but a killer of his own parent. No wonder mom and dad were terrified. There were plenty more accounts like this that helped fuel that satanic panic in those decades. Yet skeptics at the time, and more so since, have challenged some of these murder cases. They don't suggest that the crimes didn't happen. They clearly did, and people were sentenced. Rather, the causes of the crime is what has been scrutinized. Rather than Satanism or the occult, what if it was simply troubled teenagers who were in difficult environments, who were already headed towards dangerous, violent behavior anyway? Perhaps the symbolism of the occult simply appealed to them as outsiders. It doesn't mean that the heavy metal or Dungeons and Dragons hobbies would simply turn them and switch them to murderers. Also, many Satanists would argue that they don't believe that murder or taking away another person's freedom is acceptable. So these teens may have been invoking a horror film stereotype of so-called devil worship. In the case of Cantero, mental illness, along with an unstable and oppressive home life, may explain what happened. In other words, the causes of this sort of delinquency, even when it has the furniture of Satanism and devil worship around it, may actually be more mundane. Like in the case of the Oklahoma teenager Sean Sellers, for example, who, on March the 5th, 1986, stripped to his underwear and took his stepfather's revolver. He shot and killed his stepfather as he lay in bed. The boom of the shot woke his mother, who Sellers then shot in the face. A few days earlier, he had turned in an essay for his English class at school saying that, quote, Satanism made him a better person. I am free, he wrote. I can kill without remorse. He also ended up confessing to killing a convenience store clerk in Oklahoma City the year before, 1985, just to see what it might feel like to kill a person. Sellers went on trial, where he claimed to have been demonically possessed when he carried out the crimes, and that he recognized that his occult obsessions had warped him to murder. But he was still sentenced to the death penalty which caused a great deal of controversy because at the time of the crimes, he had only been 16 and 17. He had been a child in the eyes of the law, and yet this child was sentenced to death. 
Believers in the satanic panic used Sellers as yet another example of the devil turning ordinary teenagers into ice-cold killers. But critics said that Sellers deliberately exaggerated his interest in Satanism. It was, they claimed, a way to shift blame and to possibly commute his sentence. Sellers became a Christian in prison and in some ways became one of the poster boys for the satanic panic movement. But perhaps the real reason he lashed out had more to do with his upbringing than the devil. Later, it was discovered that Sellers was a troubled boy anyway, born to a 16-year-old mother and an alcoholic father. His mother and grandfather beat him as a child. At seven, he started to hear voices in his head. Later, his uncle made Sean wear diapers at the age of 12 and 13 because he wet the bed. And if he soiled the diapers for two nights in a row, the uncle forced Sean to wear it on his head all day. And when the uncle took him hunting to teach him to kill animals, he was labeled as a wimp for not wanting to take part. By the time he was 16, Sean Sellers had moved house 30 times. It's said that rather than make friends, who he would inevitably have to move on from, he retreated into a private world of isolation. Yet some sources say that the jury never heard these details. Instead, it was all talk of the demonic influence of Satanism and possession that had caused this, and the response was to execute him. After several appeals, all of which failed, Sellers was killed via lethal injection on February the 4th, 1999, He sang Christian worship songs just before he died. In America, the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. And since then, Sellers has been the first and at the moment the only person to be executed for a crime committed as a child in the eyes of the law. So was the devil really to blame here? Or was Sellers a boy who finally snapped after years of abuse? Again, that doesn't excuse what happened. But it's a less black and white explanation than... The devil made me do it. And yet the media seem drawn to that explanation. And perhaps so do we. Indeed, in another case from 1988, a 16-year-old boy called Robert McIntyre was sentenced to life in prison after killing a 15-year-old girl in a satanic human sacrifice. His lawyer, Kenneth Kruntz, tried to call for a mistrial. He said that the prosecution had clouded the case with accusations of devil worship and that they had improperly introduced evidence like heavy metal albums as proof of why they had killed. This all fared into the satanic panic, but as Krantz put it, he said, quote, they have taken a murder trial and turned it into a virtual witch hunt. The 1980s and 1990s were a time of great progress and cultural change in many ways, but as we've already discovered, it was also a season of fear. And you could say that today those fears have largely dissipated. For example, in the 1980s, the AIDS virus really was terrifying and it ruined lives. And yet today, advances in medicine mean that most HIV patients can still lead a long and healthy life. It's amazing. Also, the Cold War ended in 1989, and with it, largely came a reduction of that fear of imminent nuclear catastrophe. And I suppose you could say, that the satanic panic has vanished too. You don't tend to turn on mainstream talk shows these days and see warnings that your kids are going to be warped by Saturday morning cartoons or rock music. 
you don't really see widespread news reports on so-called satanic ritual abuse cases. But make no mistake, the satanic panic has not left us. In fact, the fear of satanic corruption, particularly coming through culture, has simply become deeply woven into the fears of this world, particularly in America. Now, rather than VHS tapes being handed around churches, warnings of the demonic onslaught comes through the internet and social media that has become a powerful source of stories and ideas and accounts, which claim that Satan's influence is bigger than ever today. Believers in theories like Pizzagate or QAnon regularly use words like demonic and satanic to describe a battle that is raging for the souls of not only our teenagers, but of all people. But is it true? Well, I'll leave that up to you. All I will say is that at the very birth of America, there were fears of witches bringing the corrupting power of Satan into the Puritan communities. In the 1980s, the source of Satan was youth culture. Today, Satan is said to ride on the horse of government and authority. What of tomorrow? Where will the panicked finger point next? Perhaps that is the most frightful thought of all. Because when a culture assumes that Satan may lurk in many guises, who's to say that one day you or I might not be seen as the vessels of Satan? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.